Okay, folks, so the plan tonight, uh, as we continue through our, our series in 2 Corinthians, uh, is to do uh, chapter 3 in one go. Um, now, time-wise, it's not an issue. Don't worry. Don't panic. It's not a long chapter. The difficulty with chapter 3 is context, uh, and that's going to be the big thing tonight, trying to keep chapter 3 in context with the rest of the book and what Paul is teaching on a bigger scale. We transition from chapter 2 into chapter 3 here, and for me personally, there, it doesn't, it, Scripture is divine, it is perfect, it is of God. What is not perfect and not from God are our chapters and verse numbers, okay? They were added in after, and sometimes it feels like they didn't quite get it right, and I'll be honest, I'd have maybe changed it around a wee bit. I mean, this is just one streaming letter from Paul, and I would have probably kept chapters two and three as one chapter, or at least maybe started chapter three a couple of verses earlier. Because it's really a continuation of the last verses of chapter 2. So, so let's just get the flow into our heads. This letter is a response to the repentance of the church in Corinth. There had been tolerating sin. There had been people who had kind of been speaking out against Paul. There had been false teachers infiltrating. Uh, and they had been listening to them and kind of maybe shunning Paul shunning the true gospel. And Paul has, has had to sort of call them out on it a couple of times. There's been visits. There's been other letters between First and Second Corinthians. And eventually, Titus comes to Paul and says, they're finally listening. They're starting to turn away from what is false and back to what is true. And, and this letter of Second Corinthians is Paul rejoicing in them coming back to the truth. And he's calling on them to share in his joy, in the God of all comfort that is even, that even in their strained relationships, the, the folly can be for God's glory. And then he talks about some of the misunderstandings that have occurred. He finished chapter one, last, we finished it last Sunday night, talking about the change to the travel plans because people were using that to make him sound fickle, to make him sound as if he was uh, unreliable, untrustworthy. Oh, he says he does one thing and then he does another. You can't trust Paul. So he, he kind of addresses that. Then this morning we saw Paul transition in, in, into chapter 2, talking about the final step of church discipline. These guys who had been sinning, these people who had... Uh, to be confronted and had to be called out on, says the, 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 the final step of church discipline, the best step in church discipline is to affirm your love to them. Make sure they know that as they're brought back in, they are loved and valued. Don't just assume that they know. You know, they sometimes, especially men, will kind of just go, oh no, well, they, they know I care. It's like, hi. You know, I kind of went, hey. You know, we kind of don't really do emotions very well, but it's like, you no, know, Paul's saying, no, you have to make sure they are in no uncertain terms aware that you love them deeply. Reaffirm it so that they're not overwhelmed by their sin, overwhelmed by their shame. Because it's a powerful, powerful imitation of God who totally forgives us and doesn't count our sin against us, who remembers our sin no more. Praise God for his forgiveness. 
And okay, I understand it is a tough thing to do in reality. It's all well and good, us sitting here looking at the, the, uh, the theory of it. It's not easy to get to that point, to call someone out on their sin, to work through that with them, uh, and then come back in repentance and back in line with Scripture. That's not an easy thing to do, but it is worth the effort. And that's how we kind of finished this morning. Uh, the fact that he reminds us that while there is so much to discourage us if we choose to fixate on those things, but the truth is that Christ is already victorious. Christ has already overcome. All we have to do is point to him, and that is our privilege, and that is our motivation. But as we go into chapter 3, it's the same principle that's at work here. Our Christian life, is not, it's not enough for us just to sit still and be content. Well, I'm saved. I don't have to do anything more. I'm saved, so I, I, I can kind of opt out. I don't need to be involved in church. I don't need to be serving God. I don't need to be doing that. Get off my case. I'm already going to heaven. The Christian life has to be treated like a verb. It's a doing word. You have to be doing. Whether it's forgiving, restoring, loving, the Christian life, much like a child who is young, needs to grow. That's how you know a child is healthy, by, by them growing. They need to be developing, need to be learning. And so all these chapters, these first three chapters so far, are all aspects of continuing to grow like Christ and pushing on in the faith. And it's all the same principle explored through different lenses. Now, in the last verses of chapter 2, he begins this other pivot. So let's pick it up, verse 15. We, we kind of did some of these verses this morning, and then we'll just flow on in so you get the, the arch of it. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Who could handle such a task? Who could handle such a calling? Who is worthy to speak of God in such a way? Because we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need somebody letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Really interesting verses, really, really interesting verses. See, what Paul has just said in chapter 2, uh, and part of what he's doing could be constrained as, or construed as arrogant. He's, he's kind of coming along saying, you know, people kind of pushed him to, this, to the margins in Corinth and says, well, guess, here's what I do, here's what I do, here's what I do. And says, all right, Paul, chill, you know, you've got a bit of a big head there. What's going on? Well, here, it's almost like he kind of anticipates people kind of saying, uh, you know, do we need to widen the doors here for you, Paul, to get in and out? Rather, he's aware of this, and so we get a wee bit more insight now into why he's written the letter this way about having these privileges in Christ. Since he left the church in Corinth, something that is quite predictable happened. There has been a recurring theme that whenever Paul establishes a church and then he moves on to another area, there's people who are coming in behind him 
And it's almost like they're kind of shadowing, and wherever he goes, they'll follow. And they're trying to manipulate the teachings of the gospel that Paul was established. Uh, in fact, the entire book of Galatians is about Paul addressing these people and the work that they're doing. And once again, these false teachers have come into Corinth and said, okay, yeah, the gospel, it's totally amazing. It's absolutely incredible. But you as Corinthians, as Greek people, you're not going to really get the fullness of God's blessing until you do all the Old Testament stuff as well, which means, uh, men, you need to get circumcised, snippity, snip, snip, start adhering to the festivals, you need to start doing Passover. You need to start doing, eating kosher food. Drop the bacon sandwiches. It's not going to happen. Because if you're going to be God's children, then you need to confirm to the original model, the Jews. Because that's what he called them to be like. And so if you want to be one of God's children, then you actually literally have to be one of God's children, the Jews. So here's the thing. I genuinely don't believe that there was any malice in what they were doing. I think they genuinely thought that they were doing the right thing. Now, let's be clear. They were wrong. I just don't think they thought they were wrong. I think they, they genuinely thought that they were in the right. And moment of honesty here, hand on heart as, as a pastor, I totally get where they're coming from. I can totally see myself falling into the same trap as these guys did. Because I, I, as uh, the church leader here, I feel like I have to set an example and preach and teach and live out an example for people to sh not only just explain from the front, but to show people how to walk after the Lord, to walk after the Lord. Uh, and so I, I will put extra rules and regulations into my life, and I'll say, okay, I'm going to choose to do this, I'm going to choose to do this, I'm going to choose to do this here, because I, I'm aware that people are watching me. I'm aware that people are, will, might imitate me or use what I do as an excuse to do the same thing. And so I, I put that on me as part of the, the rule here. And then, so imagine then whenever I see people and they do things differently to me, and there's part of me that goes, no, 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 but, but that's not the way I do it. I'm showing you how to do it. You have to follow my example. This is, I think this is the best way that a Christian should be. I think this is the best way that, that, that a Christian should, and, and you have to do it my way. Now, as a pastor, there's this other voice that's just as loud, that understands and screams at me that the glorious central truth of the gospel is faith alone and by grace alone through Christ alone. And there is freedom in that. Freedom to do things a wee bit differently from the pastor. Freedom to do things that, that maybe just look are unique to yourself in the same way that, that there's numbers of married couples here in, in the church this evening, and your marriage will look a wee bit different from my marriage, and that's it's not better, it's not worse, it's just different because you've got different personalities, and, and so you interact a wee bit differently because there's different strengths and different weaknesses and different attitudes at play. And in the same way that our marriages can all be strong and yet look differently. Our relationship with God, just as strong and unique as it will be, will be unique and will be different. 
And each of us are called to play a unique role and play a different part in the body of the church. We are unique but united in Christ through Christ. And that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And Paul is trying to defend this beauty from people who would cheapen and dilute the gospel by adding rules and regulations that are outside of the gospel into it. So if you want to be a Christian, well, then you have to do this as well as trusting in Christ for your forgiveness of sins. Uh, you, also, you have to, to pray a certain number of times. You have to read a certain amount of your Bible. You have to attend church so many times. You have to do, you have to, you ha- otherwise you can't be a Christian. Adding rules and regulations. Yet these people who came in and were teaching this, they had letters of recommendation from one another and saying, well, look, you know, I've got people, this guy endorses me, so I'm coming to this church with authority. Does Paul have letters? Does Paul have a letter endorsing him? And the Corinthians were kind of listening to it and going, I, right enough, I never saw a letter. Did, did you see a letter? I never saw a letter. Did you see? No. Because well, these guys, they've got letters, so they must be smarter than Paul. And that's kind of how it went. And so Paul here says, okay, do I have to go get a letter for you to listen to me now? Just to compete with these guys who are peddling the gospel? Is that how it, it's going to have to be now? Do I have to go get a letter? Now, imagine someone came up to me uh, at the church and said, Jeff, I don't really think you should be a pastor. Now, hand on heart, I might say, you know, there's days I think exactly the same. But then he might say, well, show me your credentials. Well, I, I don't carry them about with me. I don't have them in my wallet. They, I have them somewhere filed away. I have been to Bible college. I've done my de- exams. I, I've passed them all, if, if that puts you at ease in any way. But Paul's argument to the church here in these verses is, if you need proof, then you're the proof, not words on a page. You're my proof. You're the letter of recommendation that shows that the gospel I'm teaching is the real thing. So you can have doctorates and letters after your name and you can still peddle a false gospel. You could be in it for all sorts of reasons. It's a career. It's influence. There's people who do it for, for money. And there's churches across the world and across Northern Ireland who historically have been led by people who are academics and yet have no business shepherding the people of God. And Paul's response to this question mark over his credentials is, Look at the difference the gospel's made in your life. Now you tell me, is it real? That's my credentials. And Paul, in these verses, is making an allusion here between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The old covenant with the law and the new covenant that is in Christ. Moses brought the original law down from Mount Sinai on two tablets of stone written by the very finger of God. He came down to the mountain to see all sorts going on. And so he throws them down, smashes them, and he had to go back up the mountain to get another pair. And then he comes down. And uh, the law that he brought down became the standard of God's requirements for the people. Those standards, though, told the people what God expected. But those standards never helped them meet those requirements. 
the law was able to show them that they fell short. The law was there, able to show them what was expected and was able to show them that they would never be able to do enough to earn a place in heaven. The law was there to remind them that they needed a Messiah. The law was there to point towards Jesus, someone who would come and make a way where there was no way before. That they needed someone who could fulfill the law on their behalf. The law of Moses is designed to point towards Jesus. And you get to Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A new covenant. And Paul's saying, you're the letter that God has inscribed in your hearts And that trumps ink and paper. This internal covenant, not an external one. So theology is his first proof of his credentials. Guys, look at the results. What I'm teaching works. Before you started eating kosher, before you started getting circumcised, before you you started doing all the festivals, the, the work of the Spirit was in you. There's your proof. The other proof is their life. They're different. And so he says, okay, now it is time to show people the internal change. You know, so often we believe that Scripture is how unbelieving people will come to faith. In theory, it's a good assumption to make. The problem is very few unbelieving people read the scriptures. But the truth is that we as believers need to live out scripture before them so that they might see it in us. Paul Gilbert wrote the poem, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true. So what is the gospel according to? to you. We, each of us as Christians, are an epistle, a covenant that is written on our hearts on display. We have been changed by the gospel, the Spirit of God that is in us. We have to show that to the world, not by food laws or circumcision or festivals, but by the fruit of the Spirit that is in our life, faith, hope, love, peace, patience, kindness, and all the others. Such, conf- such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. So it's about Him. It's not about us. It's all about Him and what's been done for us, what's been done in us by Him. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letters of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul's saying, look, I know I'm doing what I'm called to do, not because other people say that I'm good at it. 
but I'm basing it on the fact that I know that God has called me to it. Now, Paul is smart. He's an academic. He, he's been at the highest echelons of education. He has all the status. He has all the wealth. He has all those things going for him that you could possibly want in an individual. But when he introduces himself in, in the letters that he writes to the churches that we have in Scripture, he doesn't say, hey, I'm Paul, and here's all the letters after my name. Call me Dr. Reverend. Rather, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle. Now listen, it's always good when people will back you though, right? They'll put their name behind you. Right? I mean, I've had emails and there's been people who have invited themselves to come and speak at the church, which is always a kind of a red flag. It's kind of going, uh, yeah. And I don't know who they are, and so I ask around, and there's times whenever I can't find a single person who either knows them or anyone who has a good thing to say about them. Now, I don't just turn around and say, well, they believe God has called them, so I'm going to bring them into the church anyway. No. Of course not. Paul had plenty of people who would endorse him. Timothy, Titus, Priscilla, Aquila, the entire network of the Christian churches across the Roman Empire, the one in Jerusalem, all of them would endorse him readily. All of them have endorsed him already. But Paul isn't interested in getting people to focus on people. His point is that all these people will endorse him because they see the call of God on his life. That's what he wants them to see. He wants them to see God. He doesn't want them to see people. He wants them to see God in him. Would I be a better pastor if I was the Dr. Reverend Kennedy, professor of theology or master of divinity, some might say, well, it couldn't get any worse. <laughs> or, or would I be a better pastor if every time I spoke to someone, every morning I went into my study and, and, and began and, and prayed and said, I'm Jeff, a sinner saved by grace. And I am overwhelmed by the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of who he is. Let me tell you about him. Let me share about why he's so incredible. I'm a servant for Jesus Christ. A born servant of Christ. One of many in this building. One of many in this town. Big difference, isn't it? So the question that he asked at the end of chapter 2, who is sufficient for these things? Well, our sufficiency is of God. Verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of, of the letter, but, but of the Spirit, because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, this is, gets taught incorrectly sometimes. Often people will talk about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Um, so imagine someone enforcing a, a rule to a ridiculous degree. And yes, technically they're right. And don't you hate people like that? Well, technically, man, man, man. It's like, shut up. 
That's not why the law is brought in. That's not why it's there. You're, you're, you're following the letter of the law, but you don't get the spirit of the law, all right? And that, you know, we have that. Uh, imagine um, I say, okay, guys, no one's allowed down. No one's allowed out of this room uh, during the service, all right? For insurance reasons, all right? All right I make something up. Uh, and yet, people are busting <laughs> to go to the toilet. Or someone needs to, needs to go down and get a glass of water or, or something like that there. And so you slip out, and someone goes, ah, 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 ah. Jeff said, you're not allowed out. Letter of the law, spirit of the law. So often that's what gets pushed in this. But the reality is that this is not about the technicality versus intent. Rather, the letter is the law. The old covenant, what was written down for Moses, the spirit is the new covenant. Uh, John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Big difference. Paul says the letter kills the Mosaic law so that you're so determined to elevate, that you're so determined to celebrate, that you're so determined to enforce on everyone. It brings death because all it does is expose our flaws. All it does is expose our sinfulness. And Paul's not saying that's a bad thing. He's not. What he's saying is all it does is point you to your need of a savior. It doesn't save. That's his point. It is grace through him. That's what brings life. Not do's and don'ts. Not following rules and regulations. Now, if the ministry of death that brought death I'm just realizing that the version that I have up there is different to the one that I'm reading from. So apologies, I'll read this one. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? See, the teachers are saying, look, Corinth, the Mosaic law is so wonderful, it's so glorious. Oh, guys, you've got to get into this. Oh, the feast, the festivals, it's so rich and it's so wonderful. And the rules and the regulations, it helps control the fun. It made Moses' face shine with glory. It was so awesome. That's in Exodus 34. But you see, the radiance of the presence of God. But Moses covered his face not because it was too bright. But according to Paul here, he covered his face because the glory was fading. The light was fading. It was so bright. But the glory began to diminish. It was temporary. The glory of the law was temporary. And so Paul's saying, yeah, listen, it was awesome. But in verse 7, he calls it the ministry of death. Do this and that the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. 
The new covenant also reveals God's standards in Christ, but it helps us to meet them by giving us the one who fulfills the law, Jesus himself, and the fruitfulness of the Spirit in us. The law is a mirror that reveals the truth. But while it tells us what we're really like, a mirror isn't going to change your reflection. You might get up in the, tomorrow morning, look in the mirror and go, I don't like what I see in the mirror. Smashing the mirror and getting a new mirror isn't going to change what you look like, I'm afraid. It might make you feel a wee bit better, but it's not going to change anything. That's what the law does. It, it just holds ourselves up and reflects us back so that we can see what we're really like. So that it then leads us to go and find washing and cleansing in Christ. The law has a purpose, but its purpose is not to replace the one who it points to. Think about this, man. In Romans 7, 9, Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. See, what he's saying is, I thought I was awesome until I started reading the Bible. Then I suddenly realized, oops, (laughs) I didn't realize that was a sin. <laughs> oh, oh! I didn't realize that was a sin either. Oh man, I, I was doing really well until I started to look into this. Turns out I'm off the mark. But that's what he's saying. So imagine taking a, a glass of water, okay? But instead of it being nice and clean, it's um, it's full of dirt and muck and different things. Now we could, if we left the glass to sit and we let everything settle in it for long enough, all the dirt would just begin to float to the bottom. And the water would look fairly clean at the top. That tends to happen to us. Whenever we go and we talk to people who don't read the Bible, who don't know the Word of God, and say, you know, do you think you're a sinner? No. (laughs) Why do you think that? I'm not a sinner. I'm fine. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. We hear that all the time. I'm not a bad person. But the law stirs the water and it reveals the dirt that's hiding. And we realize how contaminated we are. We realize how sinful we are. We realize that the stains of sin is so much more obvious. It's a ministry of death. And so Paul says, guess what? If that impresses you, the new ministry of life in Christ is going to blow your minds. Verse 10, this gospel in Christ is, is all we have and it's all we need. There's no more bits to come, Hebrews 1. And Paul's writing in a unique period of time. The curtain of the temple has been ripped, torn in two from uh, whenever Christ died. Uh, but sacrifices were still happening in, in, in Jerusalem. It'd be 15 years later in, in AD 70, the temple would be totally destroyed and never again would sacrifices happen um, be made to God from Jerusalem. Never. There has been no Jewish sacrifice made for sin since AD 70. Yet their own law says that without the shedding of blood, without that sacrifice, there can be no forgiveness. So the Jews are stuck with a law that cannot bring them hope because they're trying to make sacrifice. They're trying to fulfill a law that can't be fulfilled. And yet, I, I would put it to you that God removed the temple because there was no longer any need for sacrifices to be made there. The sacrifice had already been made in Jesus Christ. The old way has gone. The new has come. 
and forgiveness is found and everlasting life is found in Christ. And so Paul is writing in between these events and saying, you're going back to something that's fading away. You're going to something that's, that's not going to last. Don't go back there. You don't need to. Let's finish up. Therefore, since we have such a hope in Christ, we are very bold. Not, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what has been brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. And what's he saying here? He's saying that this new covenant, there is liberty, there is freedom in Christ. You don't need all these rules and regulations. It can look a wee bit different from other people. That's fine, as long as it's all in Christ. Remember what Jesus himself said in John 8? He says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. For we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is saying here, guys, you don't get it or they don't get it. They don't see it. Don't get sucked in by their extra rules and regulations. They have passion, but they don't have knowledge. They've got letters of recommendation, but they don't have the Spirit of God in them. But we do see it. Let me ask you this, church. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see the true gospel for all its beauty and majesty and freedom and glory? Do you see that it is freedom that allows us to love God without thinking, well, I better love him or else I don't get to go to heaven. But rather, I know I'm going for heaven, but I get to express my love for him anyway. That we get to live for him freely, not because there's an ax over our heads, but because there's joy in our hearts that we get to serve God freely and forgive people freely and to serve in the church freely, not begrudgingly, not, not with hesitancy or a sense of obligation, but simply because he loves us so much and I love him so much and I want to do this for him. That's what freedom is supposed to do. Freedom in Christ is not saying, well, I don't have to do it, therefore I won't do it. But freedom in Christ means to say, there is nothing other than love compelling me to do this. And it's our choice to do it. You know, there's nothing more heartbreaking for me as a pastor whenever you hear people saying, oh, well, I suppose I have to. <sighs> Hurts. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt me. It doesn't affect my spiritual life. And of course you don't have to. There's no one there keeping score. It's not the law. It doesn't influence grace. It doesn't influence salvation. It certainly isn't going to make a big difference to our prayer meeting if that's your attitude going, well, I suppose I better go because I have to. Listen, your prayers will bounce off the ceiling. You're not going to help anyone in that spiritual battle. You're not. Your prayers aren't going to work if you're doing it simply because you have to. That is freedom. You don't have to. 
But in this last verse, Paul speaks to the Corinthians and says, but freedom doesn't give you permission to stop growing in the likeness of Christ. There should be sanctification. If we see God for who he is, if we see the gospel for what it really is, if we have this unveiled face, then without exception, those who are saved, those who have that veil lifted from them, every single one of us should be changing from glory to glory in the image of the Son. And for all our different starting points, for, for those who started in, in, in deep traditional churches and you have all these rules and regulations kind of embedded in your soul, or, or whether you've come out of, of uh, addiction or, or abusive situations or a party lifestyle or whatever it happens to be, money-oriented or whatever it is, whatever starting point, we are all converging on the same image of Christ. And so listen, for all the importance of freedom, if you are saved, you should be like him more today than what you were the day you got saved. You should be more like him today than this time last year. You should be like him more today than this time last month. You should be more like him today than this time last week. You should be like him more today than this time yesterday. Now, I understand that you might not be able to measure it from yesterday or measure it from last week. Because the changes might be totally unnoticeable, unnoticeable in you. They're so slight. In the same way that a child gets ta- a wee bit taller every day as they grow up, it's only whenever you stop to compare where you've been before that you realize that you've grown. Think of it this way. Uh, I decided that I want to get fit for some reason, right? And I, I go to the gym, and I blast it out for 12 hours, okay? And I, I sort of crawl my way back, get propped up in front of the mirror, and I go, okay, am I fit now? No, I'll not be fit after one lengthy session in the gym. The way to get fit is by doing 30 minutes in the gym every day. But the reason we don't do that is because we do 30 minutes in the gym, stand in front of the mirror and go, am I thin yet? No, eh, it doesn't work, right? We don't notice the change, we don't see it. But what happens is if you do 30 minutes in the gym every single day, over a length of time, you may not notice it day by day, but when you see where you were when you started and you see where you are then after a month or after six months or after a year, you go, I see the difference now. It was small but I, I, I begin to notice it from where I used to be. That's how it is in spiritual growth. Just a, maybe just a little change every single day. Maybe unnoticeable in itself, but revealed over time. The longer you walk with God, the greater the change in your life should be. So that people who maybe you haven't seen in years, maybe you haven't seen since school, you haven't seen in a long time, will meet you and say, wow, You've changed. Not because you've got a meaner. Not because you've got all these extra rules and regulations that you try to live by. Not because you've become really good at judging people since you've started going to church. That's not how it goes. But instead, you're more like Christ. And it shows. You've talked the talk, but people see it. That doesn't happen with rules and regulations. 
doesn't happen with legalism. It doesn't happen with the do's and don'ts. It can only happen through Christ. Listen, church, uh, just as we finish, make your walk with Christ the ultimate goal in your life. Put it above your marriages. Put it above your parenting. Put it above absolutely everything. And I guarantee it that as you develop your walk with Christ, it will bless your marriage. It will bless your parenting. It will bless your family. It will bless your house. It will bless your workplace. It will bless all these other things that flow out of that. And your life will be marked by sanctification from glory to glory to glory to glory into the image of the Son. But if you hold on to unforgiveness, if you hold on to the relationship issues, if you hold on and base your happiness and your spirituality on other people's opinions of you and not on Him, if you get saved and think nothing more about growing in Him, you're never going to be happy, folks. Friends and family will not notice any difference. They'll notice this, and okay, you've, you've said you've made this change, but it doesn't make a difference. Why should I do that? But oh, to be in the place where Christ is your delight. Say, I, I love Christ so much. I, and with this newfound freedom that I have, I'm choosing to love Him more with it. I'm choosing to make a difference for him. I'm going to serve, not because I have to, but because he is in, he's my delight and it's in my heart to do it. You notice whenever uh, a young couple get together, you don't have to say, listen, you start going with this girl. You ever think you should spend some time with her? All right? No, they're, they're like stuck together all the time. It's like, would you, would you ever go and do your homework? Would you ever go and like do something else? Because whenever you're just so in love, when you have that freedom, it's in your heart to go, I'm running to this person. I'm running to do this thing because it brings me so much joy to be there. We live for Christ not because we are obliged to, but because it is our privilege to. And so I'll tell others about him, not because I have to, but because people can't help but notice him in me. And it's a privilege just to put words to him. I am free in Christ. And yet my love constrains me in a way whereby I cannot help but to live and to love the one who first loved me and gave himself for me. That's freedom in Christ. That's freedom in Christ going to ask the musicians to come up again. We're going to sing one more song, and then uh, I'll close in prayer, and then the